to a new season of Public Books 101, a podcast that turns a scholarly eye to a world worth studying. I'm Annie Galvin. I'm the associate editor at Public Books, which is a magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship that's free and online. And I'm Nicholas Dames, an English professor at Columbia and editor-in-chief of Public Books. You can read the magazine at publicbooks.org. So this is a new season of our podcast, and we're so happy that you are here listening. I hosted last season, and in those six episodes, we explored the internet, the vast and sometimes very confusing environment where people increasingly live, work, form communities, and of course, where we get spied upon by corporations and governments. And from our guests in season one, we learned about some of the lesser known but very interesting stories about where the internet came from and who built it, and also what the internet is doing to us as individuals and societies and cultures. So if you're new to the podcast, there's lots to explore from season one. But Nick, this season takes a bit of a turn, although the more that we've thought about it, there's actually quite a lot of commonality between season one and this season. Because I think in a sense, they're both focused on technologies that facilitate human connection and self-expression, although uh, the internet is relatively new and our topic this season is quite a bit older. And so you'll be hosting the next five episodes. What will you be exploring with your guests? Well, this season is about the novel now or the novel in the 21st century. So I, I study novels as a professor, but I also love novels as a reader. And I'm obviously not alone in that. I mean, the novel has been a major cultural form for at least, uh, let's say, three centuries at least, right? I mean, it's so dominant that my students, in fact, occasionally use the term novel for really any book at all, plays, (laughs) epic poetry, you name it. And I Mm -hmm. I have to train them out of that, but I understand the impulse. (laughs) Yeah. It's possible to argue, though, that the status of the novel is being slightly displaced, not by other literary forms necessarily, but by the internet, actually, Mm. and all of the associated on-demand entertainment options and distractions that we're now presented with. Yeah, I mean, the novel is one of the great loves of my life, but I will admit that I, I find it sort of harder and harder to train my attention on reading. One thing that we definitely learned from the first season is that, you know, the people who design the internet and these platforms we use and the devices did a very good job of making them addictive <laughs> and difficult to resist. That is basically their their business model. And so it's interesting to be someone who still really wants to spend time with this somewhat creaky <laughs> old old cultural or artistic form but we shouldn't we shouldn't though lose, lose sight of the fact that for much of its history the novel was that addictive form and was talked about mm. as the thing that was worryingly addictive and right. would separate you from your community your family keep you up late at night um, doing things you shouldn't so it's interesting when you have two technologies that in some sense have been thought of at least as addictive kind of butting heads with each other. I'm wondering, I mean, if, if you're willing to be sort of honest about it as as a professional novel, uh, novel reader and novel studier, do you feel a similar, I guess, constraint on the amount of attention and time and enthusiasm that you might have for the novel these days? I mean, I definitely feel that constraint, but I also feel this kind of yearning for the the opportunity to read a novel without the internet 
infecting that reading. So I, I know I'm not alone in the ways in which when I read novels these days, I read it with my phone, you know, within reach, if not in my hand, right? And sometimes right. Th- those two <laughs> things can kind of participate with one another. You know, I'll, I'll come across something yeah. I don't know in a novel and I can Google it. I'll, I'll, you know, there'll be a description of a particular location, a very precise description of mm. a location. You can go to Google Maps and see what it looks like. And so there's this, yeah. there's this kind of multimedia dimension now that seems built into my reading, which frankly, I'd, I'd really like to be without sometimes. So that is one of the things I think we're going to be exploring is not just what novels can do in that environment, but in fact, how we interact with them in this environment and how that might change the way we experience the form. Yeah, that's really good, good to keep in mind. And so I have a question for you, Nick, as a, as a professor of the novel, and I know this might be a, a hotly debated question in certain circles, but what do you think was the first novel ever written? So what was the first novel and, and therefore how old-ish do you think this form of the novel actually is? Wow. Can I, um, <laughs> can I ask you a supplementary question? So, okay, sure. Yes. <laughs> is your definition of the novel um, dependent on it being printed? existing after the printing press? Because I've got two different answers for you, and it depends on okay. whether that matters, <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm a little bit rusty on my novel theory. Um, however, one of my favorite arguments about this is from Walter Benjamin's essay, The Storyteller, which was published in 1936. And In that essay, he makes a really interesting distinction between stories and novels. So stories being narratives that are told from one human to another or multiple humans in a social setting, uh, whereas the novel, in contrast, is a form that's, that's very much in isolation. So it's created in isolation, and it's also consumed in isolation. So, you know, when we're reading it, we're usually sort of in our own brains interacting with words on a page. So I think that idea of the novel needing to be something that is printed has to do with its kind of somewhat special nature as our art form of isolation. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? I'm perfectly willing to buy that argument, actually. I, I think there's really something okay. to it. And it's, and it's so, I, you know, I was going to say that a lot of people don't believe that and they think the tradition of the novel can go back mm you know, something like 2,000 years, that there are these prose narratives in Greek and Latin mm. that one could think of as novels. But I actually do think you're you're right. I mean, I, I do tend to agree that the printing press well, matters. Well, Benjamin is right. Lot, right? <laughs> Benjamin's right. Not going to take exactly. credit for that, yeah. And I, you know, I, one, uh, there are a lot of definitions of the novel out there, but one of them that I actually like quite a bit is that the novel is really the only major literary form in the West, at least, that postdates the printing press, that mm. is is intimately mm. bound up with the printing press, and that means I think you're onto something with this idea of isolation. It is, it's distanced from us in multiple ways. It's it's mm. mediated by a machine, and that strange virtuality of the relation between the novelist and the reader, and the fact that both novelist and reader are isolated. Uh, I, I think, and, and you know, that relationship is produced by this weird new thing called the printing press. We all mm. are going through a similar experience, but we're going through it alone. And right. um, this is, of course, what is so difficult to achieve now is that solitude 
sometimes in, mm. order, in which to experience the form. But I, I, so, you know, if you take that definition, if you say the printing press matters, we might as well just go with the standby answer on this, which is that the first novel we might as well say is Don Quixote. Mm -hmm. um, even if yeah. Don Quixote in that novel is a reader of things we could call novels, he's reading uh, and obsessed by these romance fictions that had been around for quite a while that were highly stylized and conventional about chivalrous knights um, and the noble ladies that they serve and sometimes save from dangers. So, you know, an, an extremely familiar form of narrative that had been around for centuries. He's obsessed with them. He tries to live them out. But in so doing, and in failing to really being able to live it out, mm -hmm. he stakes out this new territory, which is this new form, which is essentially premised on the idea that that old thing, the prose romance, doesn't represent reality. So mm -hmm. that then the novel is sort of, you have to think, starts with this gesture of saying everything you used to read, that old way of doing business is now defunct and silly and and too rule-bound too, right? And, and the novel's this space of free experimentation where almost anything goes as long as what you do do is an attempt to describe the way things are right now. That's great. I know that is a that is a go-to answer, but I think you made a really good case for why it should be. So if the form is about 400 years old, why should we still care about it? What are the what are some of the questions that kind of motivated us to develop this podcast series? So at Public Books, we started to become curious about basically why people still read novels, what novels are, are doing for us. We, we review novels, we have people who write about them extensively, but this larger question kept kind of hanging over even our own coverage. Are novels helping us become more imaginative or more ethical, more in tune with other people or the world we live in? Or... Or, you know, are they just providing us much-needed entertainment and distraction in, in ways that are maybe a little distinct from what, say, TV, movies, or TikTok or other platforms provide us, but maybe not fundamentally all that different in the end? Well, I, I am obviously interested in those questions and very excited to hear these conversations. So I'm just curious, can you give our listeners a sense of how these conversations will go? So, you know, what, what will in a typical episode look like? So we're pairing a novelist, or at least somebody who has written novels, with a scholar on the novel, but we've allowed that novelist to pick a recent novel to use as a way to discuss what they think the novel can still do for us. So each episode will be about the novel in general, but also kind of focused on one uh, 21st century novel as a test case. So I just have one more question. Do Listeners need to have read the books that you'll be talking about in order to get something out of these episodes. No, I don't I don't really think that's necessary, actually. I think if you're at all curious about novels and what they're still doing for us in the 21st century, then I think these conversations will hopefully spur you to think in new ways about this old cultural form that we love and maybe even point you to some novels that might spur your thinking even further if you want to read them. Okay, well, that sounds great. And I would say to our listeners that for this season, we're also partnering with Harvard Bookstore, which is an independent bookstore in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 
And so if you are interested in reading any of the books that we talk about or books by our guests, then you can purchase them all through Harvard Bookstore and we'll put a link in our show notes. You can buy books there online just like you would through Amazon, but you would be supporting an independent bookstore. So buy novels, read novels. And I'm really excited to hear these episodes. So I will hand the mic over to you. Well, thanks, Annie. Um, Let's introduce today's guests and then dive into our conversation about novels, ideas, and even dangerous ideas. And the South African writer J.M. Kutsea's Elizabeth Costello. I'm Teju Cole, and I'm a novelist, a photographer, and a critic. And I teach at Harvard as a professor of the practice of creative writing. I'm Tara Menon. I'm currently a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows, and I will be studying as an assistant professor of English at Harvard in next fall. Thank you both for, for joining us. And our our chosen novel today, I should say our chosen novel, although Teju, you were the one who actually chose it, is uh, Kodzea's Elizabeth Costello. And I wonder if we can begin by having both of you say what Elizabeth Costello is about in just a few sentences. If you were asked to summarize the novel for someone who knew nothing about it, what would you, what would you have to say? Yeah, my first instinct is to give an, imp- an impish answer, which is that Elizabeth Costello is about 222 pages. Um, and I think... It's impish, but there's there's something in it because it is suggesting that any complete work of art resists summary, um, and that's part of what it's doing. Right. I'd yeah. I'd say the way it presents itself is uh, a fiction that is made up of lectures slash lessons. He calls them lessons. I think maybe there are eight of them. No, that's right. There's eight. And a and a, and a short postscript. So it is a work of fiction that indulges in the essayistic mode to a much greater extent than most novels do. Does it matter for you? Uh, You know, your your comment that it's it's 220 pages, I suppose, depending on the edition you have, right? Reminded me of one of the older definitions of the novel we have, which is something like a, a prose fiction of a certain length, right? And one of my questions is, does it matter that it's in prose? Well, it matters that it's it's in prose because that yeah. um, partly because for conventional reasons we don't make the distinction between fiction and nonfiction in poetry. Yeah. Uh, we just assume that poetry is a combination of things that have happened and things that haven't. Yeah, um, and that's a big problem yeah. with 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 the novel. Actually, is that distinction increasingly right. a, a, a kind of vexed border? That's right. In prose. When something has a certain quantum of made-upness, we call it fiction. Uh, If it falls below that quantum of made-upness and still contains a made-upness, we call it nonfiction. So there's there's conventional niceties at work here. Um, And I think Elizabeth Costello, the the book, is interested in um, testing those conventions. That's that's an excellent start. Tara, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I think I want to, just for the listeners, offer a sort of more prosaic, like Wikipedia kind of definition. I, sh- of I the should novel, have done that. Which is, <laughs> which is that um, 
Elizabeth Costello is a novel that ostensibly follows a fictional novelist called Elizabeth Costello, who's an Australian woman who the first um, lesson that we would traditionally call the sections of the book chapters, but um, Katsaya chooses the word lesson, begin, is set in, I think, 1995. And we meet Elizabeth Costello, therefore, when she is 66 years old. And so we track the this novelist as she moves around the world, delivering lectures in various locations. And I think by the end, she's probably in her mid seventies. And so, and Deju is really right to say this is a novel that resists summary. And I think that's largely because each of these lessons takes on a sort of grand philosophical subject, whether that be the lives and rights of animals or the problem of evil or the novel in Africa. And so we move th through this novel where Elizabeth Costello is a character who serves as a sort of mouthpiece for various ideas. Tara, you mentioned the the lessons, the chapters that are lessons. And one of the interests mm -hmm. of the novel is actually that it's pre it's made up of pre-existing units in some cases, right? These, these were not originally written necessarily for the novel itself. So the, the novel has this right. earlier life to it. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm, I'm wondering what you, do you think that's something that a, a reader should know about this novel before you, before they enter into it? You're right that most of them, in fact, I think six of them existed before the publication of the novel. And, and the more unusual thing is that two of them, the chapters that are called The Lives of Animals 1 and The Lives of Animals 2, were published as a book with four responses um, as well. And so, but to the question, do I think a reader needs to know that? No, I actually don't. I think that the most interesting way to think and read this book is to treat it as a sort of autonomous object. And I'm sort of most interested in thinking about the, that, the book today as the eight lessons and in the form that it exists. That sounds like, though, that might be where the novel is most fictional, is in that pretense that these things did not have sure. an independent life or a prior life to being packaged in it in the form in which we have it and sure. and i wonder if that's is that like the the suspension of disbelief we have to have when we enter this if we're suspending whatever else we know about it from outside the frame so the reason that i say that i don't want to think about i sort of want to set that issue aside is that i think that it really raises um the possibility of an accusation of laziness or something like that on Kinsea's part, that he just threw this together. I think, Deju, correct me if I'm wrong, I think this is post him winning the Nobel Prize. Yeah, it's almost um, um, coincidental with him winning it. I think maybe okay. maybe the book was actually published in October 2003, the same month in which he won the Nobel Prize. Yeah, so I think it sort of raises this laziness accusation, and that is, I think, part of a series of accusations about Kurtzea and this book that I'm just like deeply uninterested in, which is the the sort of issues of he's using Elizabeth Costello as a mask for his own views, and he's sort of not brave enough to say what he really thinks about factory farming and the analogy to the Holocaust, and he's sort of hiding behind a character in order to make these controversial points. And if I'm being completely frank, I just don't care mm -hmm. about what Kurtzea mm -hmm. thinks about factory farming or what he thinks about the problem of evil. And I kind of want to set that aside. But 
I'm willing to be. No, that's that. that's. I mean, I I, <laughs> I generally would would be with you on that. Although it's interesting, you've you've raised some questions. Maybe we'll get to take up about something like potential accusations of timidity that you're hiding something by presenting it in the form of a fiction. And then this mm -hmm. somewhat related question of I don't know. I would almost call it consumer fraud. You're trying to pass something off on the public sure. by repackaging things that have been available elsewhere, and uh, mm -hmm. that the accusations of bad faith that might come with that. And, and mm. the novel kind of, I think, maybe flirts with that a bit. Yeah, and I think actually this also starts to touch on a little bit on, you know, part of the answer to what is the novel about. And part of what it's about is, you know, asking what we mean by a literary character in a novel. Mm -hmm. I think it's about the characterness of characters and accepting some of those conventions and very bluntly rejecting some of them. Mm -hmm. um, and there's work happening there as well. Yeah. And that has a funny relationship to the one of the major ethical questions in the novel, which is how do we accord rights to other creatures? What kinds of rights do we accord mm -hmm. to other creatures, whether animals or possibly even literary characters? Mm. Yeah. Right. So let's, let's talk just a bit then about the genre of the novel as a way of starting. And, and Teju, I want to start with you because your writer has worked across many different genres. You've written novels, essays. Um, like many of us, you write tweets, or for a time, you wrote tweets, uh, and, and criticism, uh, particularly around photography, and you're a photographer. So in your creative work, you've ranged across many different genres and many you know different mediums even. But as a reader, what's your relationship been with the novel as a genre? What what do you tend to turn to novels for? Hmm. Relative to the novel today, I'm feeling slightly acerbic. Um, and so I would give an answer something like, when I'm reading a novel that's not good, um, I'm just exasperated. And I think the focus on literary culture in the novel is completely played out. And I wish people would just be a bit bolder. Uh, and when I'm reading a novel that's very good, I'm maybe a little bit disheartened because, you know, when I read, write my next novel, I would like it to be a novel that's very good. You know, I take it as a sort of like a, <laughs> I, would, I take it as a sort of a personal challenge. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah. it's it's a, it's a genre I have an uneasy relationship with. I think this has everything to do with the role that it plays in the market. Who th who enthroned the novel as the be all and end all? I like the individual novel well enough. The enthroning of the novel and the quote novelist inside our culture. I, I generally find kind of irritating. It's, it's interesting the way that has persisted, right? I mean, there, there's so much discourse about the death of the novel that's been going on for decades, but it, sometimes the way you're putting it can feel as if the, that discourse of the death of the novel is just the thing that keeps enshrining it as the almost like the default literary form. Yeah, perhaps so. And it's also possible that the death of the novel is something that interests people in universities. But the formula for making and selling novels was so well established in the 19th century. This is Tara's uh, métier here. It's going to keep going on. Now, if people were just really making novels like Rabelais made novels or Cervantes, I don't think mm -hmm. they would do so well in the market. 
But the formula arrived in the 19th century and it just keeps going. It just keeps going. Um, it has a place in, in society for, for how long, who knows, but it seems fairly robust right now. That seems like a, something that, you know, Tara, you and I might occasionally forget, which is that the, the novel is a marketing category. But, but mm -hmm. Tara, if I can turn to you for a second, I mean, you're a, a scholar and, and also a critic. And so I think you're invested in the novel to some extent, like professionally invested I mean, in it, right? As Teju was talking, I was I think that my role on here is sort of like the whatever the Captain America equivalent is for the novel. I feel like I'm here to defend in like a novel supremacist mm. or something. <laughs> but can you say something about that at a on a personal level? Of course, like myself, you probably want to defend the novel purely on the basis of what you do for a living, but uh -huh. um but Personally, what's your relationship with the novel like? What what do you turn to novels for, if it's not for your own work? I obviously, as you say, I read read novels for work. But actually, I would say that most of the time in which I'm reading novels, I'm doing it for what we could call pleasure. And um, that category, I think, for me is quite a capacious category. Like when I say pleasure, what do I mean? And sometimes I think I mean something really basic, like comfort. Like at the beginning of the pandemic, I just wanted to read Agatha Christie. Like uh, all I wanted to do was like sit in a soft chair and read Agatha Christie. Um, and then sometimes I read for escape to go, especially now when we can't travel. Sometimes I read for the sort of feeling of being completely in a different place. I find novels transporting. But I also... Um, very often, and I think Costello is a really good example of this, I read novels to think better and to think harder. And I think that I'm mostly a defender of the form of the novel, the genre of the novel, because I, I do think that novels do that better than anything else. I really believe that novels are this technology because they are fictional and because they are immersive that allow you to think through ideas better than anything else. And I know that's a sort of like a philosopher would sort of take major umbrage at that statement. But, I, you know, I, I think about it a lot and I, I do think that's true. Oh, I like that. Yeah. This novel, Elizabeth Costello, seems to be one that really troubles those categories in certain ways because it... You, the way you were saying it, it would seem as if something like, well, we we learn how to think through certain ideas by seeing the way they work in the life of a hypothetical person and mm -hmm. uh, the, way in, the way in which they filter into someone's everydayness, I suppose. But of course here... Mm -hmm sometimes what you're getting are just lectures. It's as if you have a, a you know, a thinly transported university lecture. In fact, it sure. is a university lecture, right? So I think that my defense of that, and I think the reason that this is sort of fairly categorized as a novel rather than a series of printed out lectures is that if we take, for example, the sort of most famous lesson slash chapter in this book, which is The Lives of Animals mm -hmm. 1, which I think is called The Philosophers and the Animals as its mm -hmm. subtitle. 
To make a very basic point, the actual lecture that Costello delivers is not the vast majority of that chapter. Mm. There are there is a fictional framework that there's some narrative around that chapter. And I think critics of this book have and and James Wood maybe most famously has called that fiction fitful or sort of minimal mm. or you know sort of inefficient or something like that. But I I would argue that actually the frame narrative that happens before, but very particularly the interruptions of the lecture in the text by, so Elizabeth Costello has a son who's at this university and he, and the son has a wife who for personal reasons hates her mother-in-law, but is also a philosopher. And there are moments in this text where the, the wife sort of sighs or mutters something under her breath. And, and that's the fiction of this. And those are the moments which makes me think the hardest. Those are the moments where I go back and reread the paragraph of lecture that Costello has just delivered and, and think, do I side with the exasperated daughter-in-law about this idea? Or do I actually feel convinced by what Costello has said? And for me, that's something that the fiction is doing rather than the philosophy. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, Tara makes a convincing point there. I think the fiction is working in this in these interstitial spaces. I wanted to go back to the question of pleasure for a second, reading novels for pleasure. Um, I think these things are also sort of habitual. I think the mm -hmm. habits of mind that Tara is talking about, where there's pleasure of the kind of Agatha Christie, and then there's pleasure of the kind of sitting with a book like Elizabeth Costello, there's a pleasure of an intellectual sort. There's a pleasure of sort of like a narrative sort happening. And for whatever reason, I have found for myself that novels have become part of, I wouldn't call it a healthy balanced diet. I don't know. They've become part for me of an extremely varied sort of what I would call an intellectual interaction with the world. And so I have friends, Tara among them, who read more than 30 novels a year. You know, that's just a matter of course for life for them. I don't do numbers anywhere near that. But I listen to a lot of new music, like a lot. Yeah. And yeah. I don't just mean, well, I don't just mean any particular thing. I, I listen to contemporary classical and I listen to new Nigerian pop. And I stay on top of what's just been released in jazz and so on. Um, I watch a lot of films. And when you were describing that space in which ideas can be presented and wrestled with. Films do that for me very much. And not just, not just ideas, but spaces in which one thinks about making. How is this made? And what does this teach me about being in the world and making? Films are huge for me. Poetry is huge. I would say novels are huge, but there's no kind of <clears throat> near exclusivity or anything approaching a monopoly or even a dominant market share um, of, you know, <laughs> of all of those things that I indulge in. Um, I think music is probably the one that has the biggest market share. And that is not really an, a realm of ideas. That is sensation mostly. But when it comes to like the more discursive practices, I spend as much time with movies as I spend with uh, printed fiction. So that's really interesting, and I'm curious to hear you both say something about this, which is that one difference the novel does seem to possess, which 
may not be quite as true, or at least not true in the same way of either film or music, is that it really is, it, it, it colonizes your time mm. in such a strong way. It's hard to Indeed. read a novel while doing anything else. Indeed. These things take a lot of time generally to consume. So, you know, it's, it's quite different. I've, I've listened to 30 jazz albums. I've listened, I've read 30 novels. Mm-hmm. That's a huge disproportion in terms of amount of time invested. And I wonder, it is one of the questions about the novel today, just as a, as a genre or a marketing category, how that attempt to seize great gobs of your time plays with people who live in a different media landscape than they did in the 19th century or 18th century. I have to say the figure of 30 is not quite right for me. I, I think I, I, I do read a probably 60 to 70. That, that's what I thought, but I was, yeah. I was trying to, you know, I was, I was um, underplaying it, it so yeah. that to give you the opportunity to do just that. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And, um, and it is like, a, it, it's, it's a sort of, uh, in some ways, an embarrassing amount of time. Again, as I said, I'm here as a sort of shameless defender of the novel. But the fact that it is um, so all-consuming of your time, I think speaks in its favor at the, at the sort of moment that we are in now. And I count myself among the many people who are sort of addicted to things like social media and the internet and sort of other forms that require you that you can do as you walk to the kitchen that you can do when you go to the bathroom when you are walking down the street and I can't read a novel in in that way at all it requires a sort of amount of concentration and also time to myself in a way that's really, you know, obviously when I'm on Twitter, I'm by myself in my room, but I'm not by myself. And, and actually the novel is really sort of solitary in a way that I think is rare for us to be these days. And I think that's kind of wonderful about it. I do want to say, though, I, I was listening to um, the New York Times book review podcast and they had the CEO of Netflix mm-hmm. on there. And Pamela Paul, who's the editor of the book section, said that um, she asked him, do you not like books because they're competitors? Because you want you're, all you're doing is competing for people's mm-hmm. attention and books take away. And, and his answer was sort of, uh, I don't really worry about books um, as taking time away. Our main competitor is video games. Right. That's interesting. And that for right. me was right. mind-blowing. Right. Right. Yeah. I was like, no. he, he just doesn't care. But, he's like, read all the yeah. novels. You're not yeah. going to do it yeah. anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not going to get there. I mean, he's, he's gotten it down to the essentials, which is time suck, right? He wants you binging on his yeah. shows, and he knows that the only other thing people binge like that with truly exactly. is video games. Well, for me, you know, exactly. I mean, the time question is very interesting because take movies, for example. Recently watched um, uh, Masaki Kobayashi's Harakiri, a samurai film from 1962. Beautiful, wonderful film. Um, I had seen a 2012 version of it a few years ago, and that's also very good. Uh, Director's name is Mi Ike. But it's not just like, you know, I sat down, this film is a two hours and 15 minutes, and that it just took me two hours and 15 minutes. What you have to remember is that these days we, we pause, mm-hmm. we stop, mm-hmm. we go to the bathroom. In fact, I stretched this film out over two, two nights. Um, yeah. And I feel like it, 
in a sense, it almost took me two days to watch it because I stopped, I actually stopped it halfway and I was processing it before I continued with that. It was, it was truly immersive. And I think it was only two and a half hours for sure. It will stay with me as powerfully as any book I read this year um, be mm-hmm. because of the intensity of the way in which it was made. So we also have to find a way of measuring the lifetimes that we experience when you watch five minutes of a really seriously good film, you know, um, yeah. which yeah. It could be like reading an hour, spending an hour with a seriously good novel, right? The, the, the time yeah. starts to do something else inside you as the apprehender of, of any sort of, any work that approaches sublimity. I'm going to be impish and suggest that you actually found a way to consume that film novelistically because you yes. let, <laughs> you let, you interrupted it, right? And that seems to me that's one of the interesting things about the mm-hmm. novel historically is that it allows for, it, you know, it couldn't be consumed in a single sitting. That's right. Sitting. That the phrase, I could not put it down, is a, yeah. is, is a blatant lie that many reviewers It is. Use. No, of course. Yeah. Of you course, could put right. it down. It, it, you know, what, you it, know it, what you did. Well, you... You put you it down. You had to put it down. Yeah, you had to. Right, right. <laughs> that was sort of part of my point, which was I left implicit about why I think that novels are so good at sort of helping us think through problems. And for me, the other art form that I think does this very well is actually narrative television. And I think the reason that I would make the distinction between television and movies is precisely because you do have to stop with with television in the way that you have to stop with a novel because you you can't spend all day watching a TV show or all day reading a novel, assuming you have sort of a life to lead and other things to do. And it's actually, for me, the thinking of a novel and, and about a television show happens when you're not doing it as well. And then you return to it. And that is what I think is so beautiful about sort of novel reading yeah. And very good. Yeah. Oh, well, that's really yeah. interesting because for me, the 10-part TV series is, and, and you, you have a good point. You have to, you can't finish it in one night unless you're being crazy about it, which you can also do with a novel. The 10-part TV series is actually hobbled by the fact that it has to make its money back. It's, <laughs> it's just not that deep. It just cannot really, truly be an arena for thought in the way that a, a good compressed film with the vision of an auteur can be. And there are very many such films. I think there are some good TV series, the ones that really reach greatness that are not sort of like having a dip around episode five are very, very few because these things are expensive and they have to make their money back. And not only do they have to make their money back, they have to make it back in a pretty rapid cycle. Pilots, there are some good pilots but like over the stretch of the series, <laughs> you know what? I watch those things, but I watch them for production design. But, because okay, that's... I'm gonna, I think obviously we should move <laughs> no, away from right. television very shortly, but I do want to make a sort of... Are um, you going to defend television two, now too? Two, <laughs> well, two counter, yeah, two counter arguments. I think that there are shows like Fleabag, which are very like tight, sort of the 10 episode, even though I think it's even fewer episodes than that, that I think are as sort of 
tight and sharp as the best movies. I think Fleabag is something like extraordinary television about very, you know, about grief in the first season and love in the second season. But my my real plug is for the opposite of the 10 episode television show, which is for something like The Good Wife, which is like a 22 episode per season, eight season show, more closer to the to a trollop novel or a Dickens novel that's sort of being serialized and put out and isn't sort of like an auteur mm-hmm. um, tight TV right. show. And and honestly, I think The Good Wife is the most criminally underrated television show of the past decade. But that's a show that works for me like Costello mm. does. It is a show that raises issues. It raises and 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 the form, in fact, is similar because it takes place in a legal in a courtroom. Mm. And you have people making arguments Mm. and you have to think about like, do I think that that was a convincing Mm. argument or do I think that this was a convincing argument? I think I, you know what? I think that's a really great counterpoint. I want, I want to move back in time a bit and, and, and Tara, you know, maybe I'm going to turn to you initially here. I'm really curious how you see Elizabeth Costello falling into the tradition of the novel rather than Mm -hmm. necessarily competing against contemporary media Mm -hmm. of various kinds. But do you see it as continuous or how do you see it fitting in that tradition or, or radically yeah. discontinuous in some way? So I think that the the most obvious comparisons or sort of the lineage that Costello comes out of is what we could think of as the early 20th century and mid 20th century philosophical novel or novel of ideas. So something like Thomas Mann's um, The Magic Mountain or Robert Merzel's A Man Without Qualities. But also I think... Um, novels by men and women that we mostly know as philosophers like Jean-Paul Sartre or um, Simone de Beauvoir. And I I think that it is, if one had to classify Costello as a subgenre, I think we would call it a philosophical novel. But I I, I was very aware when I was thinking about this and what kinds of books it's most like, that those are all not novels in English. Mm that those are all European novels and sort of the idea that the English novel is uninterested in ideas or something like that is something you hear every once in a while. And I have, um, well, okay. I have one sort of very strong counter argument to that, which I think is that actually there is a tradition of the philosophical novel in English and it just was very short lived and practiced by very few people, but it happened in the sort of 1790s post French revolution with people like William Godwin writing a book mm-hmm. like Caleb Williams, mm-hmm. Mary Wollstonecraft writing Mary a fiction. Um, and then I, I mean, I, while I was thinking about this, I think Mary Shelley's Frankenstein sure. is maybe where I see sure. Costello coming mm. out of. Um, yeah, but I, I have more to say about the like ideas in the novel, but I think that's like sort of genre-wise, that's where I would place. But it, it does seem fair to say that ideas tend to have a bad reputation in a lot of English fiction, right? I, I, I was thinking mm-hmm. about... You know, I think it was T.S. Eliot's famous remark about Henry James that he had a mind too fine to be violated by an yeah. idea. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a compliment, interestingly mm-hmm. enough, I think, right? right? It, 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 even if slightly backhanded, it, mm-hmm. it is a way of praising the fiction as being kind of impervious to the idea. Like the idea is something that you can't digest, doesn't fit 
in the form of the novel just sits like a lump in the middle of the fiction. You know, that is a sort of common thing that one hears and sort of the philosophical novel is thought of as standing slightly outside the main strain of realist fiction, especially in the English novel. But I think if you were to ask people to name a single exemplary realist fiction of the English language, a lot of people would say George Eliot's Middlemarch. And I think of Middlemarch as a novel of ideas. Mm-hmm. I think that, and, and, you know, they we can say that they're digested um, in a way that Costello's are undigested and sort of like just presented. But I think it's a sort of ludicrous idea to say that the re- that realist fiction, both in English with somebody like Eliot or Thomas Hardy, but in, not in English. I mean, if if War and Peace and Anna Karenina are not about ideas, I don't I don't know what fiction is not about ideas. Teju, do you uh, yeah? Do you have thoughts I mean, on this? I think that makes sense to me. I think that uh, Elizabeth Costello is not just a novel that is dealing with ideas, but it's also a novel that's dealing with what it means to present ideas, what what Tara calls undigested, right? Mm-hmm. So if you think about the book that is probably most frequently named in it, which is Ulysses, right? Because Elizabeth Costello has written a kind of sequel or repost to Ulysses. Mm-hmm. That's the big baggy novel of ideas, the big modernist novel. The children of Ulysses are devastated by the century they have had to live through. So after Ulysses, you get Beckett. And even if not directly, you get Kafka, Camus, these people who are much more representative of what we think of as the 20th century, and all of whom are characterized by frustration and doubt, where Joyce had fecundity and wild optimism. And frustration and doubt is what Elizabeth Costello is about. Um, so it's definitely in that lineage. It's saying, this is what you have to deal with now. Here at the end of the 20th century, at the very beginning of the 21st century, this is what those problems might look like. And so you have this eminent novelist who is going around the world and thinking in public about what it means to think in public. It's not as dry as it sounds because those those are real problems. I think this is something Kutsia has had to deal with his entire career being asked to say something. You're, right. you're, you're, you're a writer, you're an author, you're a celebrated person. Say something in public about such and such. Um, and he wants to say, well, read the books and why am I qualified to say something? Um, yeah. And I think this is where the book actually makes its most persuasive and most um, uh, radical moves in showing us that whatever is said is underpinned by doubt. Mm -hmm. How does an author present both self-certainty and wrongheadedness? How does an author present a longing for the lyrical that is constantly being bothered by an argumentative spirit. You know, she's she's like, she's all of these contradictions. These are the things that lead to the book being so startling and worth thinking with. When we were talking about it earlier, the, we 
mentioned the difference between the word dry to describe a novel and sort of the word spare to describe a style. And I think that one of the things that makes Costello so unusual, such a sort of anomaly in fiction that has been widely read in the Western world, is that it truly is dry. That um, he is resistant to I, what he's resistant to providing any sort of entertainment or comfort for the reader. He's sort of deeply uninterested in that element of, um, and when you asked me earlier, why do I read novels? And I listed sort of the three reasons that I would do it for like comfort and mm. escape mm -hmm. and, and a sort of intellectual reason. I think this is a novel that's tests the limits of can a novel be only trying to satisfy one category? Mm. Can a novel not offer any comfort and not offer any escape and just try and make you think? Tar, the way you put it, it's not. It's obviously not just humor that falls into these categories that you you think mm -hmm. are not there. One of them strikes me, and from what you were saying, is something like a maybe this falls into the category of escape, a, a, a recognizable sense of place that you are in a milieu that is vivid and is different from what it is, you know, what you occupy and that you can immerse yourself in. And, mm -hmm. it, you know, I don't know if you think this is a fair characterization, but one of the aspects of the novel's spareness is it really withholds that sense of place from you. If any, Elizabeth Costello is, is sort of itinerant. She's traveling around yes. giving lectures in different places. Um, mm -hmm. Her her experience of these places is often very, very thin, right? It's the experience of a visitor who's there for a few days, certainly not immersing herself necessarily in, you know, local cultures and doesn't seem to have much of a local culture herself to speak of anymore. Right. And can a novel get by without, uh, without a strong sense of place? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say I have two answers to that. I, we could, so the generous answer would be, this is a conscious choice to drive home the fact that if you are a successful novelist in the global economy today, your life sort of consists of conference rooms and hotel mm. rooms, and there's something deeply boring about those places. And so what Kurtzay is doing is sort of showing how drab and boring those places are. And that's the generous answer, and I'm not actually inclined to give the generous answer mm. because I, I, I do <laughs> think that there's a real withholding. I mean, you've described it as a sense of place. I would say one of the things this this novel doesn't have, like, or like has at a very bare minimum, is description. It's like right. real yeah. description. And, and for many people, descriptions in some ways has a bad rap in the novel, I think, but in some ways, lots of people read for description. When I say I read for escape, I, I'm reading to be in Sri Lanka or be in Thailand. And the way that I am able to go to those places in my mind is through sort of heavy description. Um, and he just says, no, you're not no, getting that. No, that's right. But, you know, as far as the spareness goes, he tells us where we are. And we're fine, actually. I don't miss it that much. We're on the cruise ship. Okay, we're in Waltham. That's mm -hmm. fine. We're in Amsterdam. What else do you want to know about those things? Uh, sometimes you'll say, you know, the fall leaves were falling in Waltham. Okay, good. That's all. I mean, what what is there to say about Waltham, really? 
you know, other than <laughs> is, <laughs> I mean, no, no offense, but like other than to say is Appleton. Offended the Dutch and the good people. That's right. Is, is like Apple, swift that's right. Is Appleton College based on Brandeis? I mean, does it matter? And suddenly though, there's much, there's something here that is not just spareness, right? VS Naipaul is spare, but very lush, very, very beautiful polished surface it's like it's 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 not grotesque it's not baroque furniture it's shaker mm. furniture with a very good varnish on it good mm. sturdy mm. cherry wood pine jm could see his sentences are un, unvarnished it's you've got this sturdy furniture has been built but he's not putting a coat of anything on it that he he does have these little set pieces that stick in your mind like a burr you know, whether it's Paul yeah. West, you know, interrupting something or Elizabeth Costello hammering on about how, yeah. well, you know, these are animal, the, you know, um, the concentration camps, you know, well, we're, we're surrounded by fat factory farming. These are ideas that once they enter your mind will never leave you as yeah. long as you live. It has bird in there and laid its nasty eggs, right? Um, <laughs> so... He's a, he's, a, he's a very powerful storyteller in that particular way. I'll tell you a personal story about Kutsia's novels for me, which is that back when in the early 2000s, when my parents were living in Michigan for a while, um, when I would go over there for Thanksgiving, and indeed, after they moved back to Nigeria, and I would go to Nigeria to go spend time in Nigeria, but I specifically remember the thanks going there for Thanksgiving between 2000 and 2010. Um, if I was going to be around a bunch of loud Nigerians, my siblings, their spouses or whatever, I would usually take a Kutsia novel with me for those moments when I would be alone in my room in the afternoon reading something. I actually needed something radically different from the warmth and noise and uh-huh. demands yeah. of family. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, de- the demands yeah. to be emotionally available. I, I yeah. needed somebody who was A, not bullshitting me on any level, but <laughs> B, somebody who was very severely withholding um, yeah. emotionally. Yeah. Um, because that means that, that meant that our encounter could just sort of happen also on this level, which was a kind of like, yeah. it could happen in the ether. I, I found that I longed for it because it was the exact opposite of whatever was too much about being in family. When I first read Elizabeth Costello, when it came out, I read it like a dog, by which I mean, I read it wishing to be pleased and wishing to learn. And if the stick was thrown, I ran after the stick. Hmm. Let's skip forward, as he says, in chapter one. <laughs> and to the present, I read it now, I read it as like a cat. I read it as a fellow novelist. I read it, I read it to challenge it. Um, and I read it with a pure skepticism. And the blind spots are really glaring to me now. Mm-hmm. I'm so pleased I picked it for this conversation because again, I think it's a novel that really proposed 
a path that we might consider for what the novel could be doing right now. I know it's certainly been influential in my own work and continues to be. Um, and I think it's a, it's a stiff challenge to a lot of the laziness that's happening in contemporary fiction. It continues to be. And yet the blind spots are so glaring to me. But I'll come to them in a second. I want Tara's view. <laughs> Tara, do you have, I mean, those are wonderful stories about, uh, a, I, I'm struck by the, the coalescence of your stories about the way in which you read the novel as a way, as an escape from a certain kind of intimacy. And then this metaphor of, of the cat, you know, the least intimate of pets, yeah. right? The, the, the most, uh, the most alien to us in a sense, and, and seeking that out. It's an re interesting reversal of what the novel is supposed to be for us, which is a sort of surrogate intimacy. Okay. Instead, you're saying it's a surrogate, a surrogate lack of intimacy, a surrogate alienness that yeah. I, need to, I need to live with from time to time. Tara, did, did, does this resonate with you, um, or does this just articulate your own, your own difficulties There's, with this? I mean, there was so much um, that Deju said that I, I agreed with there, I think. But I do, I do want to push back a little bit about something that Deju said, which is that I, I, I think that, that Kurtzay is being withholding throughout this novel. You know, it, I, I'm sort of perfectly satisfied and really actually enjoy on one level not being given comfort, not being given escape, but instead being given like what I think of as like quite rigorous intellectual stimulation about ideas. But the thing that I really like about this novel and the thing that I, uh, you, the reason I'm very glad that you chose this novel for this episode is that often when I read a novel as a critic, I feel very much in control of it. I feel a sort of like mastery about like what is happening in the novel, how it's working, what I can say about it. And I don't feel like that about this novel. I actually feel that it feels more like a fair fight in a way <laughs> that like there are there are moves that he is making that I feel like, oh, I understand that. And then something will happen in the novel. And I think, oh, I've just lost my grasp of it. Yeah. I don't it's, know. It's, like, is he doing that intentionally? It's slippery. And I, I mean, that for me is the most exciting yeah, thing. But I actually have a, I have a theory about that. Okay. 2003, 2000, when he's starting to think about this, because the last book is already out on the Booker Prize, whatever. And then 2000, 2001, where is he? Ah, he's at the University of Chicago. He is a <laughs> faculty yeah. member on the vaunted Committee for Social Thought, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. which I, even back then I was like, oh my God, University of Chicago. <laughs> I was so dazzled by the Committee for Social Thought. <laughs> it was like, no, honestly, I, back then I just thought, yeah. oh my God, what a gathering of geniuses. This is like, you know, I mean, never mind the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. That's one thing. But the Committee for Social Thought, even the name itself, it seems as if it's, yeah. it sounds like a name from a novel. You know, uh, he's yes, a professor yes. in the Committee for Social Thought. Mm -hmm. And it was this, you know, handpick association of the best mm. Pure minds, you know, like the 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 Politburo of intellectuals. Ab 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 <laughs> ab absolutely right, and that's where he is. And my theory is that this is sort of what happens when you're advising graduate students at the Committee for Social Thought. <laughs> this is the language. This is the slipperiness. This is the counter argumentation. 
it's not just him as a famous novelist going around the world and showing up in small towns in whatever, Minnesota, and giving, yeah. you know, having to give talks. I think what's happening here is the grad school seminar. And I think that that's respectable. I actually like it. I, I think that the things that happen in universities are part of life. <clears throat> but I'm, I'm daring to diagnose him and saying, this is his campus novel, actually. You know? Yeah. That's a really interesting you know, way to Especially that it. particular yeah. campus, yeah. especially that particular department. It's, it is like, I mean... Isn't that like wasn't Alan yeah. Bloom also yeah. in that? You know, or, uh, if or, or he certainly was in the neighborhood. In Chicago, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. but but yeah. but it's these people. Uh, uh, Lear is there, you know, Wendy Doniger, mm -hmm. and you know these people, and it's like it's, it's these big minds, and there's all this platonic stuff going on, and I think that's that's where he kind of belonged, and that's where, and 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 there was something about the kind of thinking he had come up with. As both as somebody who had a PhD in literature, but he had also been a mathematician and he had worked in computers. So this like getting things down to the fine grain of argument, but in a disembodied way. Um, this is a book that is surprising, but in the rearview mirror makes perfect sense for him to have written. It's it is it's, there's something about the specific kind of magic of thinking in those settings. That can be so disembodied. I mean, that, and that, that can, it's part of the magic, I suppose, is how disembodied it can be that, that is, is gotten across here. Nevertheless, can I get to the blind spots? Yeah. Say, say, say a bit about these blind spots you've yeah. been alluding to. Well, it just, se it just seems to me now that um, positionality matters. Uh, for a creative person. We are actually not disembodied. Um, and I think the bold move, I mean, in a funny kind of way, this is also his Bovary, isn't it? I mean, he is mm -hmm. writing the novel where the protagonist is a woman and he's a man. Um, you know, so far so good. I don't feel like he particularly gets that wrong. Um, he does not seek to overtly feminize her, and I think that's the right move. We don't at, a, at any moment think to ourselves, this is not a woman, this is a man in drag or whatever. It's not drag, it's, it's Elizabeth Costello. She happens to be quite similar to J.M. Coetzee in certain ways, but she's herself. But... We know that the author of this book is an African. And he does not omit Black Africa from the book. But his sense of it, it's, it's actually kind of shockingly narrow. Hmm. You know, it's hmm. actually kind of a shock. I say I read it as a cat now. And... And I, I mean, I'll go on the record and say, not only do I like Kutsir, I like John. You know, um, he, I think he's an admirable person. I think he's a very scrupulous person. Um, careful, but also scrupulous. Um, and I think there are very complicated things happening in disgrace. Um, 
around guilt and contrition and disgrace and atonement around blackness and whiteness and in-betweenness in, in the new South Africa. Um, I think political critiques, some of the political critiques of that book are justified, but I think there are also a lot of ungenerous readings of what he's up to there with racial politics. But in this book, there is a sour note. When you say that 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 the understanding of Black Africa is narrow, what, what do you mean exactly by that? So two examples. One is in the figure of Emmanuel Egudu, who is um, a caricature. He has lines, um, and it is clearly shown that Elizabeth Costello is also sort of cranky towards him. But there is something so deeply dismissive of him that the mm -hmm. black person in the book written by somebody who has spent almost his entire life in black Africa, that the one real speaking black part in the book is a buffoon, mm. you yeah. know? Mm. Um, and this right. is somebody who is like a fellow novelist, right? Um, right. There's a sense in which Emmanuel Agudu is a fellow novelist to Elizabeth Costello, but since J.M. Kutsir is a novelist himself, Emmanuel Agudu, the fictional character, is also a fellow novelist to mm -hmm. him. Right. Um, right. And it's it's sort of, is, is that it? That's who you've got? You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's just so striking to go from the novel in Africa with his pretty undercooked lines, and then yeah. we go to the lives of the animals, and she gives this hair-raising argument that is sort of like beyond the pale, but with layers and layers and layers and layers to it so that we can take it seriously as argument. In other words, he can do it when he wants to, when he believes mm -hmm. the character is up to it. So Egudu is, uh, I'm not, I think the word problematic is a little bit lazy. I think Egudu is unimaginative. Um, and that's a bit shocking. way of putting it, one way of putting it is, and I think this is why I, the, the chapters I really like the least are the novel in Africa chapter and the humanities in Africa chapter, is that he is so careful to create sort of complex arguments from various perspectives, and he just doesn't do it at all in the case of Iguru. And the, the humanities in Africa section, which is really a section about you know, Africa has this choice between Hellenism and Christianity, as though Africa doesn't have a sort of history and a set of tradition. You know, it's a it, yeah. It it, it I I yeah. find it sort of just like insult insulting. I I hate the word problematic, but I just think it it's sort of like careless yeah. as a decision to not do something. That's right. In one there's place there's some, you've done it. In that's right. Place. There's something very seriously undercooked about two white ladies discussing whether yeah. is it Christianity for Africa or is it Hellenism? Which should it be? Yeah. This conversation and is those are the only and this conversation is happening in South Africa. For some reason South Africa is not named as a not country. Named. Blanche is named Blanche White. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Which I think is an interesting um contrast to Melanie, which is Mel <laughs> melanated <laughs> yeah, melanin, in, yes. in, in, in uh, right. disgrace. Right. So he knows what he's doing there, fine. But two old white ladies saying, 
And one is saying Christianity is the solution for Africa, and the other is saying, no, it's they need to get go back to the Greeks, just pick the right Greeks. That's one point. Mm-hmm. The other is that at the dinner for the um, honorary degree, where a group scene, a quite complex set of arguments is being made about the humanities in Africa. Mm-hmm. The very strong implication is that everybody in this university who's having this conversation is white. That is the very mm-hmm. strong implication. You know, we know that usually if there's a black character who has a speaking part in a Kutsia novel, he's usually not grotesque about it. He will indicate it in some way in the text. He'll slip it in there in some other way. Um, but we're in Africa and we have a bunch of white academics at the University of Johannesburg or whatever the base is talking about the humanities in Africa. Um, and I know that none of them is black also because there's nobody who actually presents a post-colonial viewpoint on these arguments, you know. Well, I was going to say that, yeah. I mean, as if the pressure the pressure elsewhere in the novel to, to situate itself in, an, in, an, in no place. It's in no place. Exerts itself even um, in the places that should be places or, or that's that are, right. are presented. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I think a third strike, um, and again, this is, this is an author I, enjoy, I, I admire tremendously and I've learned a lot from, but reading him as a cat, the third strike would be the use of the word Africa in the novel. Right. Mm. You know, right. which yeah. tends yeah. to have this um, bizarrely generalizing function. So, <laughs> Flattening. you know, so that it comes to feel that, you know, when he says something like, you know, the, the Africans are not writing novels for other Africans, mm-hmm. that somebody's always lose, looking over their shoulder. But... What's happening here is that he, an African, is writing a novel that does not imagine African readers. You know, right. Alan Bloom right. might be an re- imagined right. reader for this novel, but a young African reader mm-hmm. is not an imagined audience for this novel. Mm-hmm. The, the, the reader I was in 2003 was not an imagined novel, reader for this novel. Um, and again, I, I see all of these things as sort of blind spots and I at the risk of sounding you know um casual or, or, or glib about it I think what can be said about blind spots is that we all have them you know for all that he gets right the inability to see that apartheid falls and he so, somehow develops cataracts, and then, hmm. you know, where, where, where Africa, where Africa is concerned, it's a very yeah. strange thing. The, the and not so strange flawed thing. quality of this. I mean, there's a way in which I think you know we all probably may love certain novels because of their flawed quality, because there, there's something in them that's wrong, may may actually endear them to us in certain ways or provide a certain intimacy we have with the object that that. Other kinds of flawless objects might not engender, but um, but that might that too might be a little glib. I, I want to end with a question to both of you to sort of recapitulate this a bit and but open it out again to this question of of what it, what novels might do for us now. And I guess maybe if you can, you know, and, and Tara, I'll ask you first: What is it? 
that what 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 value does a novel still have for you and and is there something about elizabeth costello that uh that exemplifies that yeah i mean i think this would be in some ways to reiterate some of the things that i've said earlier which is i i do really think that elizabeth costello allows us to in some ways, safely get close to dangerous ideas and examine them from different perspectives and different angles without having to worry about one's own relationship to those ideas, that you can explore them while you're reading this and sort of figure it out for yourself. And I do think that that is something that all of the best novels do, even the ones that don't sort of so blatantly put out um, ideas in the form of a long speech by a single character. I think all novels or or good novels allow you to think through ideas. And I also think, again, to reiterate something, that there's something about the practice of reading novels that allows you to retreat into yourself to be solitary for a while in a sustained fashion. I believe that there's something sort of spiritual about novel reading. In, um, and I don't mean spiritual in a sort of like hot yoga essential oils kind of way. I mean that it's, I think that reading novels can be good for your soul. I think it, um, they can be nourishing, both in the ways that they make you think about other people and in the ways they make you think about yourself and what you think and what you feel. Teju, do you have a... A, a sense of what this novel does that might speak to what the novel can still do for us? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it goes back to this notion that it really does sort of drop something into your head that you can't get rid of. Several things, right? Um, there's several passages in it. But the larger mode of it, which is about the novel as a space for moral seriousness. <laughs> the novel recognizes that it has an opportunity to smuggle into the, quote, mainstream ideas that are at risk of remaining forever in books. So we could take a philosopher like Cora Diamond, who has written very elegantly and very complicatedly about uh, animal rights and about why it's wrong to kill them for food. Um, few people have read Cora Diamond. Professional philosophers have read her. More people have read Peter Singer. Um, <clears throat> right. right. But vastly more have read GM Kutsia. And to take that moral responsibility and understand that the novel just because something is called a novel or because it's called fiction, that people will go to something looking for a story and then you can hit them with something else, something more discomforting. I think it's a very important part of this. For me, probably the most resonant idea that after all the dust has settled inside this novel is what does it mean to believe that one is surrounded by atrocity. Um, for Elizabeth Costello, it means speaking up. It means risking your reputation. It means 
pressing on even when you're tired and old and in doubt and thinking about your own death. Um, she's asking, if I really believe that animals have rights that ought not be infringed, and I know that animals are being killed on an industrial scale all around me, why should I not compare that to Treblinka? The novel allows us to sit with this. And I think the best novels, the most interesting novels, and this is certainly a very interesting novel, are generative. Because then we can take that problematic and start to think about what else it can do. And, you know, for example, if you are speaking to a devout Christian, let's say a devout evangelical Christian, that person literally believes that when you die, you will go to hell. You will be tormented forever in hellfire. What does it mean to think that way? What does it mean to really believe that unless you give your life to Christ, your life has not only been worthless, but that you are in for eternal torture? Another example is, let's say somebody believes that to get rid of a pregnancy is in identical to committing murder, you know? Um, if, if somebody uh, goes in uh, two months into their pregnancy and they have an abortion, it's the same as if somebody walks up to somebody on a, on a bus and, and, and plunges a knife into their throat. Now, we know that in our society, there are people for whom these things they profess are the same. No. Elizabeth Costello is a tool for thinking about what does it mean to live with cruelly radical beliefs about life and death and about what constitutes murder. And I think that it goes there because that's the responsibility of the novelist who starts to take up these ideas. So and it the, works on and the freedom form. of the form, right? The, the freedom of the form to allow mm -hmm. that to occur. And then to find the form in which one can do that uh, yeah. properly. Um, Could I yeah. just add something to that, which is that I think that I'm so convinced by this, which is the argument that Deju is making that there's something about like, what does it mean to live if you believe this sort of terrible atrocity is happening? But uh, to add to what I was saying earlier, which is that I think the other thing that Costello does is really push you to think about, is this an atrocity? Like, to what level is this an atrocity? How bad is this thing? And I think for me, the, to, to answer your question, Nick, about why do we need the novel now? For me, one of the things that recent novels have been so good at is me too questions, mm. which are mm. questions mm. that in, in the public discourse, in the discourse of nonfiction have been black and white questions. Mm. Like this is bad. Um, and all things are sort of the same kind of bad. Mm. Um, and there's been a spate of recent novels that actually let you think about how bad is 
X act compared to Y right. act? Is there a difference? What do, like what exactly is consent? How do we define it? And those are questions that I think there's actually a danger in some ways of expressing them in the fixed form of a nonfiction article sure. that a novel is safe to explore. Or, or even conversationally, can, there's a danger. Or even yeah. conversationally. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're by yourself reading a novel, you get to have thoughts about, do I think that this act that has been called a Me Too offense mm. is the same as this other act that has been called a Me Too offense? And that, to me, is tremendously valuable. Like, we, we're lacking the ability to have those conversations in other venues right now. And the novel lets you at least have the thought. Absolutely. 100% agree. And uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, you've you've said it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you both for those answers. That was was really clarifying. And now I I have to go back and reread the novel yet again in in the light of those answers. Um, So thank you very much for that. And thank you for being here. Oh, it was was a great pleasure. It was a... It was it was Thank it was you. fun to uh, have a chance to come out as a cat finally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've, and, you've uh, given me new terminology to talk to my students. Yeah, about. but I mean, yeah, but yeah, I really yeah. also yeah. enjoyed the opportunity to go back and sit with this novel and think with it, and it did. I think exactly what um, this conversation was supposed to do, which was not just think about this novel, but to think about the form of the novel and. Um, what it is it can do for us now. And I just think, Tara, you absolutely nailed it. It is yeah. it is potentially one of the few places where genuine complexity can happen in a public yeah. in a public space. Safely. Safely. Yeah. yeah, right. Which is important as well. Yeah. yeah. And that's our show. A huge thank you to Teju Cole and Tara Manan for sharing their thinking about novels and ideas. You can find links to their work at publicbooks.org slash podcast. There you'll also find a list of further readings curated by our guests in case you want to read further or use this material in your classes. You can follow the show and Public Books on Twitter. Our handle is at Public Books and Facebook to learn more about the work we do. We'd be really grateful if you would rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show there or in Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. And if you like the show, please tell a friend or particularly a few friends. Next time on Public Books 101, I talk to the novelist and nonfiction writer Elif Batuman, as well as Merve Emre, who's a scholar and cultural critic. We investigate whether novels sometimes depoliticize readers, but on the flip side, whether they can make us more aware of power dynamics that shape our lives. So I hope you'll join me for part two of Public Books 101, The Novel Now, as we wonder, How do novels help us develop a consciousness of the world we live in? This podcast is a production of Public Books, in partnership with the Columbia University Library's Digital Scholarship Division. Thank you to Michelle Wilson at the library for partnering with us on this project. This episode was produced and edited by Annie Galvin, with production assistance from Kelly Dean McKinney. Our theme music was composed by Jack Hamilton. Special thanks to Audrey Stewart at Harvard Bookstore and to the editorial staff of Public Books for the support for this project. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you next time.